live from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Very good evening to you. Just after six o'clock on VOC ninety one point three. I'm Khawa Salman, and welcome to this edition of Questions and Answers with my regular guest answering your question, Sheikh Ibrahim Was. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh, and welcome back to the show. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullah, sister Hawa, and to all our listeners of the Voice of the Cape. All right, Sheikh, we do still have a backlog of questions. We really appreciate everybody that has been um, patient through this. I do reiterate that if you are SMSing us your questions on 47913, please be patient as it will be read uh, and answered rather in the next few weeks. We are dealing still with questions that we received at the beginning of August. There are some relating to the month of Ramadan, but Alhamdulillah, we want to answer each and every question that comes through. So, Sheikh, let's start with the first one. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Since Ramadan, I've been holding on to Tahajjud, Alhamdulillah. At times, I make many du'as. And when I read the English Quran after Tahajjud Salah, I sometimes feel like what I'm reading is applicable to what I've been praying for. Is this my imagination? Also, I sometimes believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking to me via the Quran. Uh, can this be possible? Sheikh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Uh, yes, alhamdulillah, I think uh, my first comment would uh, be really a comment of admiration and uh, really, uh, you know, thanking the sister for upholding whatever she has started in the month of Ramadan, especially the issue of tahajjud salah and connecting with Allah in those very important uh, part of the night. So inshallah, continue with that and that is something that will bring a lot of barakah in your life, inshallah. Um, and may Allah Ta'ala keep you strong on that particular path. Um, as far as the question goes uh, in terms of the Quran, and speaking to us yes uh, the quran is a guide uh, to all of us in all different ways uh, allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the quran in surah uh, bani israel which is ch- chapter 17 of the quran allah says inna hadhal qur'ana yahdi lillati hiya aqwam uh, verily this book this quran it guides to that which is the most upright and uh, the quran first and foremost is a guidance it's a code of conduct it's a code of law that we have to follow right and um, from that aspect obviously what we need to first understand is that the Quran we must read it with that intention with the intention of wanting to implement and live according to what Allah Ta'ala is telling us in the Quran uh, at the same time it's very interesting that you use this word uh, saying that does Allah speak to you and can you derive a message from the Quran and things are applicable to you yes absolutely I do think and I do believe that the Quran can have those kinds of uh, messages as well for us um, I found a, a quote by the great Tabi'i, Imam al-Hasan al-Basri and this is reported by uh, one of the great scholars of Islam, one of the muhaddithun, Imam al-Ajurri he mentions in his book, Akhlaq Ahl al-Quran, that Imam al-Hasan al-Basri said, Man ahabba an ya'lama ma huwa falya'rid nafsahu ala al-Quran and it's a beautiful statement where he says, if a person wants to know who he is, or what his position is, let him exhibit himself in comparison to what is in the Quran let him see what the Qur'an says and what he is. And that is some indication of how much or how far away he could be from what the Qur'an is saying. Uh, in another statement also attributed to uh, Imam al-Hasan al-Basri, the same Imam, and this is again found in the book by Imam al-Nawawi, a book that is called At-Tibyan fi Adabi Hamalat al-Qur'an. In this book, Imam al-Nawawi states, and he quotes uh, on the authority of Imam al-Hasan al-Basri, that he used to say that, إِنَّ مَنْ كَانَ قَبْلَكُمْ رَأَوُوا الْقُرْآنَ رَسَائِلَ مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ فَكَانُوا يَتَدَبَّرُونَهَا بِاللَّيْلِ وَيُنْفِذُونَهَا بِالنَّهَارِ uh, what it means is that he says that there were people before you, referring to the pious companions, that they 
used to view the Quran to actually be messages from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is interesting. This is almost very similar to what the sister is saying. The Quran gives her some messages, you know, that seems to be applicable to her. Mm. And absolutely, the Quran does this. The Quran makes you aware of so many things about yourself, your identity, who you are, where you come from, what you are going to do, etc., etc. So he says the Quran uh, was viewed by the companions as messages that comes from their Lord. Mm. So they used to read it in all earnest and in all seriousness. They used to read this Quran at night, but they used to make sure that during the day they implement what Allah Ta'ala wants them to do. So this is my message to you. Continue with your tahajjud. Continue reading the English translation. And inshallah, these messages are all positive positive for you. Uh, but make sure that you try to live the Quran as much as you can. And that will really be a deep connection with the book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And yes, if you find certain contentment in certain uh, du'as that you have made and you feel that Allah Ta'ala is giving you a sign in what you have read, inshallah, there is no issue, there is no problem in that that is possible. Uh, that these messages can come through uh, in that particular way. Uh, the main thing is that the Quran should become alive for all of us where we use it as our navigator through this very troubling and difficult uh, life that we have to live on, on, on this dunya. We hope everything of the best uh, for this particular sister. Inshallah, I think, Sheikh, uh, this message just proves right to all of us that if we, if we are reading the Quran, may it always be a message and may we always feel like it's applicable that Allah is talking directly to us, just Absolutely. brings us closer to the Almighty, alhamdulillah. Absolutely, yeah. that is it's the feeling we should get, yeah. that the Qur'an as if it is revealed to you as an individual. Mm. That is the purpose of the Qur'an. Alhamdulillah, shukran. Alright, so the next question is, Salam Shaykh, my sister died at birth. Will I, by the mercy of Almighty, be able to meet my sister in the life, after, in afterlife? Oh. Yeah, I do believe that uh, this is uh, fair. It's, it's very possible. Right. Uh, only Allah knows, of course, whether that will or won't happen. But it is possible. Uh, there's no objection uh, in in believing that, because Allah Taala says in the Quran uh, when He speaks about uh, our parents and how parents should should look after the offspring, etc. Beautiful verse where Allah Taala says in Surah At-Tur, uh, that is chapter 52 of the Quran, verse number 21. Allah says, "That those people who have faith in Allah." And their offspring then follows that faith. In other words, they were here to imitate their parents in doing good and following whatever their parents have set as, as an example for them, especially worshipping Allah, having faith in Allah, etc. Then this ayah says further, We will definitely make sure that the offspring are with them on the day of judgment. Now, they will be reunited with the offspring, in other words. Hmm. And uh, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, when he gives an interpretation of this ayah, he says that this ayah definitely means that the believing person, when he dies on iman and his children continue on that path, uh, it may be that his children is not really on the same level as he, in piety, etc., but because of him setting a good example, the children will definitely have the opportunity to, opportunity to be in the company of their parents on the day of judgment. Allah Ta'ala will allow, even if the children was not on par with the parents in terms of piety, etc., uh, if they at least try to emulate what the parents have set out, then definitely they will be together on the day of judgment. And so um, he also mentions that this ayah also shows that if a, a parent had small children who died while they were at an infant stage, they will also be reunited with their parents. Okay. So what I say to you as a sister of this infant that died, if you are following the footsteps of your parents, right, 
which good example and role model that they have been to you, so you follow in that faith and you follow in that same spirit, then the verse is saying you will be with your parents. Hmm. Ibn Kathir says a child will also be with his parents if he dies. So which means your sister or your brother who passed away as an infant will be with your parents. Hmm. And if you do good, you will be with your parents. And the outcome of that can only be one. Means that you and your siblings will also be united then, hmm. right? And this is obviously something which uh, which is quite uh, you know nice to think about, and it gives us that hope and it gives us that good feeling that if we have loved ones, you know, that we we miss and that is gone from this dunya, hmm. there, there is quite a big possibility, you know. And it's all obviously under the uh, the permission of Allah, but it's 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 possible from a Sharia point of view to believe that. In fact, we will be united with him in the year after and we will be sitting with him. There is even some ahadith that speaks about people visiting each other while they are in Jannah. You know, like we used to visit in the dunya. Mm. That will also happen in the akhirah. Nothing stops that. So inshallah, you, re- you should remain hopeful that Allah gives you that opportunity that you are able to meet with your uh, sibling, uh, your sister that had passed on as an infant, inshallah. Inshallah. Shukran, uh, Sheikh, for that answer. We continue with your questions after the short break. Stay with us. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Um, all refreshed and revived after Maghrib, alhamdulillah. Let's continue with our SMSs. Uh, once again, shukran for those um, practicing severe patience. <laughs> I know you're sending your messages over, your, your questions again, but do note that we will answer them briefly if you send it the second or the third time, but it will be answered as they do come, and shukran for those who are waiting their answers. Sheikh, let's continue. We have Sheikh Ibrahim Wursa answering your questions, and we have right up until 7 o'clock to do that. Um, is it then that only men who, ca- who can't recite the Qur'an who gets divorced, or is it possible that it can also happen to ulama or so-called pious people? Sheikh, I don't, I don't know how Sheikh looks at this question, but tafadal. Uh, we'll yeah, it, it seems a bit, little bit ambiguous. I okay. mean, there may be more than one way of understanding this question. Mm. So let's just look at both options uh, that I can, that we can figure out in this question. Uh, it could mean that the questioner is alluding to the fact that it seems that divorce and bad things are only happening to people who are not educated in Quran and people mm-hmm. who are educated don't over don't uh, are not afflicted by these things and if that is the question then obviously no that is not correct uh, Allah Ta'ala gives tests and he send difficulties and obstacles and trials and tribulations to all people whether they are well educated or whether they are not well educated right this is what life is about Allah Ta'ala has created us for this purpose in order to test and see who of us will survive and who of us will stay focused on this path. Okay, we read uh, Surah Al-Mulk, very famous surah that all of us know. The beginning says, Allah says, In the second verse, Allah says, He created life and He created death. For what purpose? In order to test you. Who of you will have the best of deeds? Who of you will remain focused on the path that leads to Allah? Who of you will be enticed by shaitan and will actually waver? This is the type of uh, test that each and every one of us will go through. So if that is what the question is speaking about, in order to suggest that it's only the uneducated that get divorces and that get tested and, and st- stuff like that. It's not true. We all get tested in different ways. Okay. However, the second uh, possible understanding of this question is, um, is it that when people who apply for divorce 
and they are uneducated, it seems that their divorces are pushed through much quicker, or they are given their divorce quicker for, between them and their wives, whereas people who are supposedly knowledgeable or ulama mm. or somewhat, somewhat schooled in Islam, uh, their divorces take longer or it's just not given immediately, they are given leeway, etc. Mm. So it may be somebody who got divorced. I mean, that is what I get the feeling of. Okay. He himself personally got divorced, way, yeah. and maybe it's because he was uneducated. That's why it went through so quickly. Maybe mm. he still wanted to uh, make up with his wife, etc. Mm. And if this is the question, then of course what it means then is that any divorce, for any divorce to go through, remember divorce means that you as a husband has proactively taken the stance to separate from your wife. Mm. And this could not have been done without your consent and without your knowledge. Okay, unless he's referring to a fasakh where the judiciary has even has, has actually decreed a separation, mm-hmm. and there's a difference between the two. If it was divorce, then obviously that was in your hands. Nobody could have forced you to do it. You had to do it uh, in full understanding of what you are doing. Mm-hmm. If it was a fasakh on the other hand, and you feel that you were not treated correctly, maybe they didn't follow proper procedure and, mm-hmm. and stuff. Let's say they didn't even call you in, but you just got a paper to say that you have been separated mm. and this is wrong this you can contest right this you should then take up with people that are higher than those people who actually gave those decisions to you and write a letter to them or go personally there and say look i understand that my wife had a complaint against me and i understand you had issued a fasakh to separate us but i was never informed about it mm. and if that is the case then yes you've got all the right to do that because whether you're educated or you're non-educated you deserve a fair opportunity to at least try to come to some agreement or some understanding what your situation is all about. So if that is what you are asking, I would suggest that you follow it up and actually go to them and say, look, I I was divorced by you, I was given a separation paper, but I didn't necessarily go through the procedure of knowing why and what and what exactly transpired, and I need to be given a hearing. You deserve that, of course. Every every person has got that haq to at least uh, mention his side of the story. Shukran, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, please advise what is the criteria to make an investment halal? What factors would make short term in insurance like cars, houses, etc., halal? Sheikh. Yeah, as far as the first part of the question, which is just general investments, it's uh, fairly simple. You can only invest in things that initially is halal. Okay, so you can only invest in markets and in companies and in products which Islamically is acceptable. You cannot put your money in any gambling uh, ventures. You cannot put your money in any pornography ventures. You cannot put your money in any riba ventures, right? That is directly related to riba and usury and all these kinds of things. So the actual thing where you, the company or the markets where you are putting your money with, and also your company that is handling your investment, they must be known to be people that actually invest money in things that are Islamically acceptable. Okay, so there must be no uh, connection to anything that is haram, which Islam does not allow. So, for example, you give your money to a stockbroker uh, who is going to invest your money, but you know for sure that he's investing that money in, let's say, uh, the lotto or uh, in, in gambling things or in khamar, for example, and stuff, which is clearly haram. In that case, you cannot invest in that. If it is halal, like in normal businesses or uh, products that uh, that is allowed for us as Muslims, then you can invest and you must make sure as uh, an investor to actually find out these details. And as far as the second question is concerned, 
concerned, uh, short-term insurance on cars, houses, etc. Uh, initially, these things are not allowed in Islam simply because there is a lot of risk and there is a lot of uh, uh, vagueness around these things because you pay sometimes insurance and you don't really know what you're getting out and what you're paying. There's never fairness between what you pay and what you're supposed to get out, etc. Mm-hmm. So initially, it is not allowed. Although some scholars have now obviously uh, come to some understanding that in the time that we are living, it is very difficult to stay completely away from these things because mm. you cannot really purchase a house, you cannot really purchase a car unless you take out with it an insurance as well. Okay, And if that is the case, obviously, then you take out the insurance to the extent that is necessary for you and you do, you do not take uh, in, in, in excess of what is necessary. Right, and I do believe there are also some of our Islamic institutions that are offering some alternative products as far as uh, insurance is concerned. And the term that they use is takaful. So takaful is like uh, it's an insurance scheme, but that works on Islamic principles, whereby there's a pool of money and it is paid in, and there is a complete fairness in terms of what you pay and what you get out, etc., etc. And the monies are also invested, perhaps in halal ventures and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you you should make uh, some kind of inquiry about takaful or some alternative forms of insurances because the conventional ones uh, should not be taken out except if it is a necessity and you cannot really purchase the product without having that insurance. Shukran, Jeff. Let's take a break and uh, after that we will continue with our last segment. The Voice of the Cape. 91.3 FM Stereo. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back in this edition of Questions and Answers. With me is, of course, Sheikh Ibrahim Was answering your questions. Sheikh, the next question, I'm going to get straight into it, is can a woman make salah without socks? Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim The majority of scholars, uh, that would include three out of the four madhabs, Shafi'iyya, uh, Malikiyya, and Hanbaliyya, these three schools of thought, uh, their conclusion is that all parts of a woman's body is part of the awrah when she is making salah, except her hand and her face, her two hands and her face. That are the, that are the only parts that can actually be be open. Mm-hmm. Okay? And there was a question that was posed to the Prophet ﷺ by his very own wife, Umm Salama, where she asked if she was able to make salah, you know, only in one garment. In, in other words, not a top and a bottom garment, but just one garment. Mm-hmm. And the Prophet ﷺ says, yes, as long as, uh, this was his words, إِذَا كَانَ as long as this cloak or this garment is covering her feet, hmm. right? So obviously the feet must be clothed, must be closed. Uh, this is according to the majority of scholars. So she must wear socks or she must cover it with a long cloak if she is making salah. Um, uh, however, the Hanafi scholars, um, Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, he has a different view where he says the feet are also allowed to be open when a person makes salah. And his reasoning is, first of all, the hadith that is under discussion is not a hadith that is accepted by all scholars because there's some issue in terms of uh, the authentication of it, etc. Some say it was actually a statement of Umm Salama. It wasn't a statement of the Prophet. So it's her own view on the issue. So Abu Hanifa takes that into consideration and he further then says that the feet of a woman is that part of her body that it's difficult to say she must cover it all the time. Like in summertime, perhaps she's walking outside, it's, it's difficult for her to cover it. Okay? So the Hanafi madhab allows for that, for the feet not to be covered, uh, even in salah. This is the Hanafi view. Although precautionary, it would be better to cover the feet. So if you have socks and it is easy for you to do that, that would be a better option. But if you are in a situation where you forgot or you don't have something to cover your feet, according to the view 
of Abu Hanifa rahimahullah this will be completely acceptable inshallah shukran sheikh moving to the next question and uh, i apologize now already if it sounds a bit confusing but we're reading it as it's received maaf sheikh for this question assalamu alaikum if one makes a sin on the dunya what do your family that's deceased do very strange thought come to mind i hope sheikh is able to um Yeah, I think uh, yeah. The gist of the question, as far as I can see, is uh, this person is probably worried if a person is doing something wrong. How does that affect the deceased? Okay. You know, are the deceased affected in any way, or you know, um, do they also like see what is happening, or yes. maybe maybe those kind okay. of things, right? That that could um, be a possible question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is uh, what the question boils down to. Mm. And uh, yes, of course, uh, we know that, for example, um, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had mentioned some things pertaining to uh, a person should. Not cry excessively you know if a person dies because he will be affecting the person who is in the grave right the person will actually be in a more difficult position if his family cries uh, excessively right now we need to obviously uh, look at this hadith in conjunction with the quranic verse where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says wala taziru waziratun wizra ukhra and this appears in more than one part of the quran and this verse basically means that a person will ne- never carry the burden of someone else Okay, you cannot carry the burden of another person. Okay, now the point is that if uh, this hadith now, uh, the Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam says you should not cry because you may be harming the deceased. <laughs> so how come? How does that fit in with no one will carry the burden of someone else? What the scholars have said, Imam Nawawi rahimahullah has pointed out beautifully. He says what it means is that if a deceased person before he dies, and this actually strangely used to be a custom in the time of jahiliyyah, before the person dies, he would actually tell his family members. You know, if I die, you must cry a lot for me, and you must make a, a fuss. You know, if I leave this world, and etc., mm. etc. Et so, if you actually instruct your family to cry and to weep and to, you know, uh, you know, to go overboard with these things, then you have instructed them to do something which is wrong because you are actually telling them to be dissatisfied with what Allah has decreed. But if they do it out of just their innocence, you know, they can't control themselves and they're not going out of their way, then surely that's got nothing to do with the deceased. Okay, so the only point where the deceased will actually be affected is if he had given such a an instruction to the person to say that if I die, you do such and such. Mm. So if it is a haram act, then obviously yes, it will come back to the deceased if he instructed that. Okay, but if he doesn't, then it's got nothing to do with the deceased. So of course, yeah, if you are sinning and you are doing wrong things, it's got nothing to do with the deceased. I mean, there's no connection between the two. You will answer for your own sins, and they will answer for their own sins, right? But in terms of whether they know what you are doing, can they, exp- you know, are they aware of it, etc.? Yes, there are some scholars that say that the ruh or the arwah of the deceased are able to move about, and they are able to see certain things. Allah gives them that ability to experience certain things, even of dunya issues. They are able to. And Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim Al-Jawziyah has got a, a very wide, a, a very big uh, treatise or book on the subject called Ar-Ruh. The book is called Ar-Ruh. And he speaks about the soul and the dimensions of the soul. And he mentions in here that there is possibility for the deceased, obviously, to travel in this world, to traverse you know, different areas. And they may be able to be aware what you are doing, etc. But they won't be able to do anything for you. And you are not able to affect them in any way, because hmm. both of you have separate lives, and both of you will obviously be accountable uh, to, to 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 what you are doing, right? So this is something we must be uh, mindful about. Uh, we must at least try to do good, right? And if we do good on behalf, uh, 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 let's say this is another thing. If a person dies, he must make sure that before he dies, you must prepare for death always, and before you die, try to do a lot of good, because mm. some of those good aspects may carry on while you are in your grave. 
such as giving sadaqa jariya, such as teaching someone something that is beneficial, some, such as leaving a good child behind that mm-hmm. can make dua for you. So those are things that obviously people must consider if they go uh, into their graves. Yeah, but there is no real connection between what you are doing and what the person in the grave is doing. Uh, one cannot be responsible for the acts of the other. I think what comes to mind for me, Sheikh, is that often when people comment and they hear something wrong and they say, oh, your father would turn in his grave if he knew this or your mother would ever. So yeah, I, yeah. Think that I suppose that's that a, yeah, but that's a figure of speech. Figure it's an expression, not necessarily literal. True, yeah. Right? Uh, so because each one obviously is accountable for his or her own deeds. Yeah. All right. Uh, Sheikh, my brother-in-law was married to his wife for eight years when he passed on. Not once did his children pick up the phone to ask the wife how she... He passed on two and a half years ago. Um, on top of it, they charge her for the furniture of her late husband left her. She um, Nafaka herself while she was married to him and they cut off half of the inheritance she was supposed to get. Mm. Yeah, of course, uh, there's a number of issues here that is uh, not acceptable from a Sharia point of view. And I suppose the, the question here is uh, really a, a person who has stepchildren, it, it would appear. Mm. That this wife was married to this person who had children. Yeah. And this, these children are ill-treating her now after their father has died. Mm. Firstly, from that perspective, it's wrong what they are doing. They shouldn't be doing that. Right, um, it 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 was after all the the wife of their father, okay, and it's their stepmother, uh, and they are mahram to her. I mean, they are like her their own mother in that sense, right? They can't get married to her, etc., because that relationship uh, be, that she had with their father makes it a permanent mahram relationship between them. Mm. Uh, however, um, in terms of the inheritance and all of that, it reminds us of the importance of setting straight the inheritance issues before one dies, right? Mm. Because if we leave a, a will, then obviously nobody can come and manipulate that. There must be a will and there must be an executor to the will, etc. Okay? And in this case, surely this wife, uh, she will definitely inherit 12.5% of the estate. Okay? That is a haq. Nobody can take that away from her. Right? Uh, not the children, not the executor, no one. The 12.5% is hers. And of course, in terms of uh, furniture and other things that she had received in her lifetime, if it can be proven that it is hers or the husband bought it for her or for her usage, it's not right for the, for the children to come and fetch it or to charge her for it and stuff like that. Mm. And this is a problem. I find in some families this happened where, Mathalan, I heard this happen quite a lot, where somebody would give something to his mother and father as a gift, but the moment they, they close their eyes, he comes and fetch it, you know, like a lounge suite or something, Mm. because he intended it for the parents, not for other people. But it's wrong. If you've given it off to the parents, it's theirs. So it becomes inheritance. It becomes estate, which must go to all family Mm -hmm. members. One person cannot lay claim on that. Okay, So yeah, uh, uh, definitely this person must get some some legal advice and some Sharia advice as well. I don't know if uh, her late husband left her will or not, but she definitely inherits 12.5% and uh, their children obviously has got no right. Um, her chil- uh, his children rather has got no right to treat her in this way. And also mention here that she used to nafaka herself. Now, if this can be proven positively that she uh, used to look after the household or buy food, etc., and this can be proven beyond doubt, then this can this amount is actually owing to her. That can also be actually taken from the estate as a debt, because we know we need to settle our debts when we die before mm. inheritance is settled. So this will actually form part of debt if it is owed to her from a husband, a late husband. But this must obviously be proven mm. in terms of receipts or documents, etc., etc. And if it can be done then uh, she can claim that as well. So what I can advise is they must definitely see um, seek some legal advice as well as Sharia advice as far as this is concerned so that the necessary information can be given to her, inshallah. All right. Uh, the next question is, Sheikh, Assalamu alaikum. What do you 
you do after telling your ex-spouse that he has to provide for Ida period? The Imam has also informed him he does not do it. Shukran. Yeah, you are obviously right in saying that uh, you are asking for your for your maintenance while you are under Ida. Uh, that is obviously the the law that is applied in Islam. That if you are in idda, the husband should be looking after you for that entire idda period. Everything that you need should be given to you uh, as if you are still married. And uh, I suppose the first thing that you need to do is to to get someone to advise him on that. Uh, you say you did inform him, but uh, and the imam is also informed. It appears. Um, I don't know what else you can do. You can only remind him and and impress upon him the importance of this because it is your haq to actually get that out of him. And uh, he should understand that you are going through a period of difficulty and uh, divorce in itself is difficult. Right, and so to compensate for those difficult times, the, the wife, of course, must still be looked after as some kind of consolement to her, etc. So we must not lose our our humanity. You know, when we give divorces, mm-hmm. we should still have our humanity intact. So uh, I, I I see that you the, the question is saying that the Imam has spoken to him already. Unfortunately, I don't know what else there is one can do, but one can only remind and impress and and maybe get somebody more influential to speak to him. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a family member is useful. Some uh, of his own family that is more maybe authoritative over him or that can actually uh, impress upon him the importance of what he is neglecting so uh, maybe that is uh, what should be done and inshallah hope we hope that we get you get what is what is truly yours and that he actually supplies you with with your nafaka in that idda period and he should not be looking at it as a burden he should be looking at it as you know as, as some consolement for you because uh, like I said, the divorce in itself uh, has its difficulty already. So this is some way in which at least some uh, issues can be can, can be handled. So we hope, inshallah, that will be settled in, in a good way with good understanding and amicable sort of agreement. All the strength to um, that uh, question as well. Salam Sheikh, if you advise to recite a surah, for example, 40 times for a specific purpose, do you have to do it all in one sitting or not? Um, if it's if it's long, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I would have to say that the person who had advised you to recite the four forty times the particular surah should be, t- be able to tell you whether you do it in one sitting or in different sittings, because I obviously wouldn't know why, why that uh, has come as an uh, encouragement to do a certain surah forty times. For example, I don't know the background, the context, and so on. So uh, usually these things is if it's like you know the Prophet ﷺ said that if you recite your your athkar you do the thirty three times Subhanallah thirty three times Alhamdulillah and thirty three times Allahu Akbar this is done in one sitting you don't talk in between you don't try to distract yourself in between etc um, in terms of this particular thing forty times a certain surah obviously the person that told you to recite forty times a certain surah you should ask him what are the what is the context and the background how it should be recited and for what purpose and what you know uh, how exactly it must be done that is not something that i can uh, advise you about uh, it's something specific that needs mm. to come from the one that instructed you to do it um, and yes i've heard about this where people come together and they recite surah yasin a number of times or they recite qul wallahu ahad a number of times and so on uh, and in some of these cases i know that the prophet sallam had recommended that when you when you do certain things you try not to be distracted Okay, like uh, one of the virtuous things is if you make Salatul Fajr, you try not to uh, talk after Salatul Fajr until you've done your Athkar and your Duas and, and so on. And the Prophet even encouraged those who are in the masjid if they can stay for that whole period up until when the sun comes out. 
and not talk to anyone and just engage in dhikr and ibadah, then that is something very virtuous. So that is obviously uh, more general, but specifically for this purpose, uh, the, the questioner needs to consult with the one that instructed her to recite this, how it must be done, and they will better be able to tell her uh, uh, what the uh, particular format is of doing uh, that particular recitation. Shukran, Sheikh. Moving along. Salah, my wife wants to move out and go live on her own. What can I do about that? We had some problems two years ago, but now we're fine, but she wants to move. Yeah, you will have to uh, sit and, and find out why is it that she wants to move. Uh, does she have a, a justifiable reason? Is there maybe still some issues? I know you say that you've sorted things out. Maybe there are still things that are in her way that is upsetting her or that she's not comfortable with. Um, you need to sit with her and find out uh, why she wants to leave and if she doesn't have a good enough reason which is justified then obviously it's not it's not halal for her it's not allowed for her just to leave she must remain with you wherever you are in your in your married home etc that is part of her duties towards you she cannot just pack her things and leave mm. okay because that would obviously put the whole uh, marriage in jeopardy um, so I, I, I guess you need to speak to her um, honestly and find out if there is anything she has to open up and tell you why she wants to leave. And uh, if there is no reason she simply wants to leave, then obviously something is wrong. Okay, One cannot say then everything is fine. Maybe you didn't sort out everything properly since the last issues that you have. So you need to come to the bottom of that. What is it that is bothering her? Why is it that she's still wanting to, to, do, to do this kind of thing? And this can only come about if you have at least some dialogue and discussion uh, as adults, you know, sit and try to speak about your, your, your issues. And uh, sometimes it's advisable, maybe not initially, but uh, sometimes it is advisable as a second step to also get a third party in to, to listen to both sides and to sort of play as a referee, just to, to, to listen to both sides and to give each side a hearing and then finally try to, 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 to map out some kind of a way forward if there are any issues to be settled. But just on face value, she cannot obviously just leave like that. It wouldn't be right. Mm. I mean, I have to caution against this. Uh, you know, this is causing a lot of problems sometimes in marriages where people are fighting about certain things or they have arguments and all of a sudden the one partner just moves out. Okay, this is not the way we do things. Because the, the moment we do that, what I've seen is many times when, when that happens, it just uh, widens the gap. Mm. Or it makes it more difficult for them then to come back and to discuss. And uh, because what happens now is if people move out like that, one of the partners move out, uh, there's a lot of outside influence sometimes that comes in. Mm. So now she goes to a mother, for example. So now the mother is going to speak to her. Don't go back to him. Don't do this. He's this. He's X, Y, and Z. This may happen. And so the mother becomes a obstacle between her and her husband settling whatever differences they have. Mm. Um, and that is precisely why when a woman is under idda, even after a divorce, she must not leave a married home. She must still stay in the home where the marriage was, right? Where, where they lived all the time. Because while she's under idda, there is still that possibility that they may work out things. They may come back together. They may, the fact that they see each other still, they still, you know, pass by each other, whatever the case is, there's still a possibility for them to obviously uh, try to, to settle out whatever difficulties uh, is in front of them. So she shouldn't just leave without reason, hmm. and he should try to come to the bottom of why she wants to leave in the first place. Shukran, Sheikh. Unfortunately, we have to leave our questions for uh, today just there. We appreciate uh, you coming in and answering all the questions from our listeners. Uh, shukran to all our listeners for being patient in having your questions answers. Uh, Till next time, we s- we speak to Sheikh again. Uh, as
Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you sister Hawa and to all of our listeners as well. We continue with your questions in next week's edition of Questions and Answers from myself Hawa Salman. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and a very good evening.